Welcome to The Quest. My name is Alan Mulhern. John Eccles, one of the most distinguished figures in the history of neurology and brain science, in his 1989 publication, Evolution of the Brain, Creation of the Self, argued that the most significant events in the history of life on Earth were threefold. The emergence of life, consciousness and self-consciousness. To these three, we could speculatively add two more. The development of artificial intelligence with a parallel profound alteration of human nature, that is in our own times. And finally, one that may arise in the near future, the potential demise of our species, which in its most extreme version could take all life on Earth with it. I suggest that all of these stages, the last two, admittedly potential, are of the greatest spiritual significance. To explore these ideas, a metaphysical, mythological and psychological perspective is useful. Let's look at this first trio highlighted by Eccles of life, consciousness and self-consciousness. He believed they were essentially mysterious. Thus, we have no knowledge of how life and early consciousness actually began. We have accumulated vast knowledge prior, around and subsequent to this emergence. But we have no knowledge of the thing in itself, to use the term of Kant. Since the material conditions of the earth at its beginnings are known more or less, there have been many experiments attempting to create life out of earth's primal chemicals. However, one no longer hears of these experiments. Perhaps no one is doing them anymore. Perhaps scientific laboratories have all given up the quest for this grail. Perhaps it's beyond our abilities. So what kind of explanations are given for this elephant in the room of science? Firstly, it is said that although we know the general chemical ingredients of the primal soup, there must have been at some point a unique set of conditions on Earth around four billion years ago when singular cellular life emerged and these conditions are unrepeatable. It was a totally unique, one-off event, a complete accident. From then on, life evolved according to the laws of natural selection and later the transmission of genes. Hmm, really? All of that complexity and consciousness from a complete accident? And how convenient, it can't be repeated. So, modern science has no evidence for the mechanism that led to life or consciousness. No repeatable experiments seem possible. It follows any other unevidenced theory may be equally valid. Secondly, it is suggested that microbiology will find the answer sooner or later. Hmm. This is really not an argument although no doubt the problem will be referred to AI, the new Mephistophelian god of creation and destruction of the 21st century. And we'll wait to see what it comes up with. Thirdly, it is suggested that life developed by random events, admittedly immensely improbable, and therefore statistically impossible to repeat. But since there are billions of experiments, so to speak, in the universe, then even at odds of a million to one against, statistically, some of them 
have to make it into life. The question, why should such success have been on our planet, is answered by the anthropic principle, which is that it is only sentient beings, like ourselves, who could be examining this problem at all. It is only on those planets where life and consciousness and then self-consciousness arose that such beings could look back in their evolution to examine how it began. Hmm. Notice the completely circular, self-contained, dead-end logic of this way of looking at things. There is no escape from our self-referential consciousness. Again, this is a completely accidental beginning for the development of life and consciousness, which are deprived of any significance. Fourthly, it has been suggested by the astronomer Fred Hoyle that vast clouds that contain DNA are moving through the universe and seed the planets they encounter. Although this has not been accepted by most scientists, I'm quite partial to a sower and the seed idea and became enamoured of it when I wrote a book of that title. At least this has something inevitable about the propagation of life across the universe. Of course, we would still seek an explanation further back on how these DNA clouds originated. Fifthly, an idea of alien intelligence visiting the Earth has often been proposed to explain all of these events, life consciousness and self-consciousness. This is an ancient and archetypal conviction that a divine force or intelligence which does not belong to the earth, is, so to speak, off-planet, has created this earth and or its life, including all human beings. In Christianity, Islam and Judaism, the Abrahamic traditions, this being is called God. Sixthly, the Gnostics were a widespread group of cults and theological schools originating in the Near East, who had extraordinary ideas on the origins of the cosmos, the earth and life. There is a great deal of variety of belief between the numerous sects, and some of them, for example the Mandeans, originating in modern-day Iraq, believed that the true life, capital L, was a spiritual one and came from a completely alien god from whom particles of light had fallen into this world, a world which was made by lower gods, or archons, such as Yahweh, Jewish god of the Old Testament. In their prayers, the Mandeans addressed this one true distant god as the alien life, who has never been to this world. In fact, this is a world which is irredeemably evil, and doomed to perdition, and was not made by the alien life, but by the lower gods. Now, this may sound fantastical, a great film script though, but imagine a modern narrative which says that this earth produced its highest evolution, the human race, who embodied the greatest faculties imaginable, including self-consciousness and reason but who were so full of greed, fear, aggression, selfishness and narcissism 
i.e. evil, that it destroyed the planet that had created it. Well, quite a modern idea, but a 2,000-year-old Mandean Gnostic would nod his head and say, we told you so, but you preferred the story of the Christian church, that mankind was made in God's image and was good. Seventhly, there are many who find the idea of a God who resembles a person, be it a man or woman, completely unbelievable. Feuerbach, the German philosopher, argued in the 1840s that rather than us being made in God's image, it is the gods who are made in our image. A gendered, personal God resembling a human is obviously a projection of human beings. The same applies to satanic forces. They are all projections of the human psyche into the heavens or the underworld. I share this opinion. The German philosophical tradition of the 19th century understood this perfectly well, as indeed they also understood that we had emerged out of nature and were descended from animals. Lamarck, the great French biologist, actually publishing in the 18th century, late 1700s, was well known and there was widespread awareness of evolution long before Darwin's publication of 1859, The Origin of Species. But this division between personal human-like gods on the one hand and a materialist theory of evolution on the other are not the only options. Eighthly, for example, instead of a personal god who resembles ourselves, it could be better to think in terms of a vast intelligence which is within the evolution of the universe, that is, imminent within it. Since the theory of evolution has become better understood, there are many mystics who encompass this idea within their thinking, that is, evolution, and are willing to interpret their experiences within this framework. For example, Sri Aurobindo, 1872-1950, or Anne Baring. I put their website addresses on the preamble text of this episode. I am also very much of this persuasion, of a vast intelligence imminent in the universe. I think that this corresponds to an extraordinary deep feeling in our spiritual being, that we have a double nature, partly of the earth and partly of the cosmos. All science fiction imaginings of aliens and so on belong, I feel, to this archetype. A poem from The Sower and the Seed called At the Midlife Turning puts it as follows. Know that you are from the stars as well as from the earth. The cosmos has a mighty womb. To all it does give birth. Nightly. The arguments of St. Augustine for the existence of God, formulated in the early 400s AD, near the start of the takeoff of the Christian era, lasted intact for centuries. These were the arguments from first mover, from causation, from contingency, from degree, from final cause or the teleological argument. In the 13th century AD, over 800 years later, with Christianity at the height of its earthly powers, Thomas Aquinas presented arguments for the existence of God. 
Richard Dawkins in 2006 with a sharp, witty, intelligent and well-presented book, The God Delusion, argued that the existence of God was highly improbable and he dismissed Aquinas' so-called proofs. The first three of these five arguments are simply repetitions of the same fallacy and are quickly dismissed by Dawkins. They resemble St Augustine's arguments 800 years previously. They centre around a peculiar logic that there must be a prime mover, cause or force behind those things which are moved or caused. As it were, a prime intelligence behind all intelligence. But, Dawkins argues, there can be no first mover or first cause or any intelligence at the start of everything since intelligence is only an end product of evolution and results from evolving complexity. This is a very interesting point, but notice that Dawkins is presenting his argument concerning evolution rather than refuting the opposite argument. The next and fourth argument of Aquinas claims that since degrees of perfection exist, there must be a pinnacle of perfection, and this is God. This is simply nonsense, says Dawkins. That leaves the main champion number five, the argument from design, which is the only one still in regular use today and sounds plausible. But thanks to Darwin, Dawkins says, it is no longer true to say that because something looks designed, then it must be so. Evolution by natural selection produces excellent design of great complexity and elegance. Other arguments for the existence of God dismissed by Dawkins include the ontological argument. This was by St. Anselm in 1068. And this one is most odd. He defined God as, quote, that which nothing greater can be conceived. Okay. And then argued that this being must exist in the mind and therefore must also exist in reality. If it only exists in the mind, a greater being is possible, one which exists in the mind and in reality. Therefore, he argues, this greatest possible being must exist in reality. With this contorted logic, Dawkins, of course, has a field day. And obviously, this is not a credible argument that because something exists in the mind, it must exist in reality. So let us move on. Next, the argument from beauty, that the world, nature or poetry are so beautiful that there must be a God who created these or made them possible. This is not logical and is mere sentiment, believes Dawkins. Next, the argument from personal experience, that someone has personal revelation. But, says Dawkins, this is probably just hallucination, to which the brain is very prone. One could have said the same about the dream world 120 years ago. But certain famous depth psychologists have proven the opposite. The argument from scripture, the fact that events are written in scripture, he says, means nothing. The scriptures have been edited, chosen and selected by church fathers 
long after the events they describe, such as the death of Christ. Some of the writers, certainly Luke and Mark, had no direct contact with Christ. The scriptures are not reliable reports by independent witnesses. Next, the argument from admired scientists with supposed religious disposition. This is usually a misrepresentation of their true views, which are a lot more atheist, or at least agnostic, than supposed. This, says Dawkins, includes Einstein. Finally, Dawkins suggests that Pascal and Bayesian arguments for mathematical proofs for the supposed existence of God are nonsense. Many of Dawkins' arguments exposing the superstitious and the absurd in the world's religious traditions should be welcomed, in my opinion. However, we are still left with many problems, including the Eccles problem, how to account for the elephant in the room of science, the origins of life, consciousness and self-consciousness. As I have already indicated, I also still find an argument of an underlying intelligence in the universe deeply persuasive, and I believe the argument from personal revelation cannot be dismissed so easily, more of which anon. Tently, by extension of this logic, there is nothing qualitatively different about self-consciousness or higher consciousness compared to ordinary consciousness. Self-consciousness is simply another emergent event, a leap in complexity, yes, but an evolved feature of consciousness. Thus, according to this view, human emotions developed naturally out of the higher primates. Even number and elementary reasoning arose in the higher primates also. Thus, consciousness, reason and the emotions of human beings are not uniquely created, nor do they uniquely distinguish us from animals. We have evolved from animals and ultimately from the slime of the earth. For those who wish to read more of this, please refer to chapter 7 and 9 of Fritjof Capra's extraordinary book, The System's View of Life, published in 2014. Well, this argument is consistent, but we are still entitled to ask for evidence of the mechanism, since science deals with mechanisms, of how life, cognition and higher consciousness emerged. But we have none that, to my mind, are convincing. For example, with respect to the origin of life, we have a statement that it emerged in microorganisms, the fossils of which we apparently see in ancient rocks close to 4 billion years ago. How it happened, we have no explanation for. In a sort of answer, the materialist worldview shrugs its shoulders and has a variety of, well, I think, excuses one of which is to downplay the emergence of consciousness, call it cognition, and assert that this is co-emergent with life itself, which is a form of cognition, no matter how primitive. For example, the detecting of an external environment, taking something in, nutrition, from the outside to the inside, implies cognition. Therefore, firstly treat cognition as a natural process of life, and evolution, and dump the overloaded word consciousness. Secondly, treat so-called self-consciousness 
as a natural evolution out of cognition. It is simply cognition of the inner environment of the living unit, by the living unit itself. There is nothing miraculous about it. It is simply another emergent property. Science may tell us that it will either crack these primal mysteries or that there is no mystery at all, even better. The mystery is in our imagination. But there is a different epistemological view altogether. Epistemology, by the way, is essentially concerned with the relationship between mind and so-called reality. How do we know what is true? Science, logic, reasoning, and the left hemisphere of the brain particularly, do not offer a complete view of so-called reality. Their view is always partial and frequently has a circular logic, as argued by McGilchrist in The Master and the Emissary, who goes further and explains that the left hemisphere does not connect us to reality at all. It analyses, breaks down, dissects, fragments what is presented to it from the right hemisphere and then represents it back to the right hemisphere to construct the whole, that is, to provide the gestalt and meaning. Visions that come from the deep psyche concerning these matters of life, consciousness, self-consciousness, experience them as miraculous, ineffable, beyond logic, from a source beyond our comprehension, as if from some vast intelligence, to use a limited term, from which we have not emerged as an accident, but as it were, like a child from a great womb. William Blake is famous for the following lines, to see a world in a grain of sand, and a heaven in a wild flower, hold infinity in the palm of your hand, and eternity in an hour. For him these were not metaphors. His brain, or his soul, were configured to experience the infinity in nature and all around him. But for most of us, and probably for him a certain amount of the time also, it is reason that filters out the greater vision and imposes its own sterile logic upon nature, the world, life and human beings. Blake argues that reasoning, or abstract objecting power, negativizes everything. It alienates and isolates those dominated by it. He writes, quote, Beyond the bounds of their own self, their senses cannot penetrate. Unquote. And he who sees the infinite in all things sees God. He who sees the ratio only sees himself only. So, even if science provides numerous explanations for life, evolution, the cosmos and nature, it misses an explanation for the elephant in the room. Yes, but it also misses the essential vision of all this. It's blinded to the illuminating experience of the nature of what it is observing. It is blind to our being a meaningful part of this wonderful whole. Our reason cuts us off from participation in the whole, yes, but it's also our personality structure that cuts us off from this greater whole. 
reason is the top level of this splitting off process. The development of the ego has only part of its functioning in reason, intellect and cognitive intelligence. A great deal of ego functioning is the expression of personality components, one's sense of identity, the person I think I am. It is this development of personality that separates us off, that distinguishes us as individuals. The intellect and reason are only part of this separation process. I am reminded of the Hindu story of the prince who calls his counsellors, blindfolds them and asks them to identify a very large object in the room they are taken to. Some say they feel the trunks of trees. Others say they are touching a rock face and others make fantastical suggestions. Finally, their blindfolds are removed and before them is an elephant. Individuals could only touch part of this enormity and construct their own story. Likewise, specialists examine the enormity of contemporary civilization or the cosmos and tell their version. With respect to contemporary civilization, I have stretched the crises of our times, the horsemen, so to speak, to at least ten, but undoubtedly there are many others, and I am only touching different parts of the elephant. In Hindu mythology, the elephant is represented by the god Ganesh, embodiment of wisdom and strength, and behind this we may glimpse a symbol of the self, the core archetype of Jungian psychology, the grail for which he searched. The elephant in the room is then the self. The central crisis of our time is a crisis of the self. <laughs>